Welcome to Mysterious Goings On, the podcast about creativity, writing, and mystery. Every week, we talk about all kinds of great fiction and meet the people who write it. We also feature explorations about creativity in all walks of life. Your host, Alex Greenwood, will join you right after this. Hey there, listeners. You want to get a look at me in public? Well, there's one way to do it. If you're in St. Louis, Missouri on May 25th, you can attend the Missouri Author Showcase from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Central Library location on Olive Street. The St. Louis Public Library and Dunaway Books proudly present the Missouri Author Showcase, moderated by yours truly, Alex Greenwood. Come listen to readings from local authors like Jeff Burney, who's been on this show, Fedora Amos, Sally Bernithi, Cynthia Graham, and Piper Punches. Heck, I might even read a little bit of John Pilot, too. We'll have a Q&A session to follow. But before that, you can have one-on-one with these Missouri-based authors at a meet-and-greet that'll be held from 5 to 6 p.m. in the lobby of the auditorium with books available for purchase. And again, the program begins at 6, ending at 8 p.m. at the Missouri Central Library from 5 to 8 p.m., May 25th, and I understand if you can't make it, but fear not, listeners, the event will be recorded live and featured on Mysterious Goings On this summer. I hope you'll join us, Missouri Author Showcase. Let me embarrass our guest a little bit here by listing all these magnificent achievements. I have to do this. Oscar for Lifetime Achievement, 15 Emmys, worked with seven United States presidents, founding director of the American Film Institute, co-founded, wrote, and produced the Kennedy Center Honors from 78 to 2014. He's an author, a playwright. He worked with the iconic journalist Edward R. Murrow. And uh, I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And even if he had done none of that stuff, if he had only written this magnificent book, I would just be absolutely thrilled to have him here on Mysterious Goings On. And guess what, listeners? We got him. His name is George Stevens Jr. He has spent an illustrious career behind and around the camera. And finally, he's a master storyteller who shares his own unique and extraordinary story with touching insight and historical perspective in My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood in Washington. It was published last summer to great fanfare. And now... In his own voice, the audiobook's coming out, and it's available on Spotify and about 28 other platforms. The encomiums are rolling right off of here. Um, <laughs> he's probably saying, oh, please get on with it. Let's have our discussion. So I'm going to do that. But I have to say, I don't throw this word around a lot. But, sir, you've had a legendary American life, and I'm honored to have you here. George Stevens, Jr., on Mysterious Goings On. Well, Alex, thank you so much. I think I may quit while I'm ahead and go away. <laughs> That's a nice introduction. <laughs> well, it's it's well earned, sir. I I've been doing this show a long time, and uh, every now and then you get one, and you're just like, no, no, they don't want to talk to me. They they got uh, they picked the wrong name out of the book. But you've got you here, so you can't go until we chat. So let's do that. But I was reading the book, and I just. I have to tell you this really quickly. I took such delight in the beginning because you you lay out the family tree mm. and it reminded me a little bit of my own family. My family, my great grandparents were circus folk and they performed on riverboats and on Ch- Chautauquas and, and they did this thing. And so when I read about your great grandparents and your grandparents who were uh, esteemed performers and actors and actresses, I, I just instantly fell in love with the story itself. I wonder 
were you setting the table on purpose because they were showbiz folks, so to speak, or what did you just want to start at the beginning? Because that's the place to start. Both. You know, it, it was it was the place to start as, you know, my great grandmother, whose name was Georgia Woodthorpe, was born in San Francisco and after the Civil War and became an actress. And she became an extraordinary actress. And she's known for being the youngest Ophelia to ever play with uh, Edwin Booth, America's greatest Shakespeare actor. And she started five generations of Stevens's in show business. So but telling their story and each one of which is an interesting story of my great grandmother, my grandparents, three of whom were actors. It, it was the place to begin the story. Edwin Booth. Well, he's he had a famous relative, too, didn't he? <laughs> That's true. He was the brother of John Wilkes Booth, also an actor who assassinated Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater in Washington. You know, I've, I've uh, done a little, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge Lincoln fan. Fan seems like a, a really cheap word to use, but I, I admire him so greatly. I'm, I'm reading John Meacham's book about Lincoln right now, as a matter of fact. And, but the, the thing is, I always wondered, though, um, just how hard it must have been for Edwin Booth to have to go through life with that hanging around his neck, something he had nothing to do with, you know. Thank heavens he was ahead of social media. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, you're in the book, you talk about what an effect, it's not just the the, the effect that of having accomplished grandparents and great grandparents, though, but it's, it's very evident, though, at least I saw this, it was evident that they really did instill the values that led to your upbringing. Could you talk a little bit about that? I can, and I can talk about um, the, the, the actors leading to my father's upbringing that uh, his mother, Georgie Cooper, and his father, Landers Stevens, married. And he grew up around the theater with his brother. And they used to uh, do their homework under the stage at night. And, and he, 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 I heard a recording, an interview he recorded, where he talked about being at the theater, doing his homework, and that his favorite night was when his father uh, was playing Sidney Carton in a tale of two cities. Right. And he knew when the end of the play was coming and he'd go sit under the stage and he'd listen and he'd hear his father climb up the steps to the guillotine and he'd feel the audience so hushed. And then he would say, it's a far, far better thing I do, far, far, far better place I go to and make that speech. And then you would hear the guillotine come down. And you could just feel, he could feel as a boy, the breathlessness of the audience. And then, then the curtain would come down and he'd hear the board hit the floor. And then all hands coming together in applause at once. And you just understood that a child was hearing kind of the music of the theater and the, and the vitality of the audience. And, and, it, and he remembered it and I'm sure it shaped him. And, and the actors, they were not fancy, wealthy actors. They were hardworking actors. And eventually, in the case of Landers and Georgie, my maternal, my paternal grandparents, the movie business was ruining the theater. And finally, Landers had to give up and move south to Hollywood. 
and he became a player in movies, but not a, a great leading man. And so they, it was a family, all of whom were indulged in hard work. And just to round it out, the, the, my maternal grandmother, Alice Howell, um, was in vaudeville, and she went to Los Angeles because her husband uh, had a health condition. But she'd been in a he'd been in a quartet with Max Sennett, Max Sennett on yeah. Broadway, and Alice Howell went to uh, the Max Sennett Studios and looked up Max Sennett, and he gave her extra parts, and she been she worked very hard at it, and then he hired a new he he sent a telegram to the Carnot traveling troupe group of British actors famous that traveled all over the United States. And he said, I understand you have a man named Chiffin, C-H-I-F-F-I-N. I would like him to come to work here at the studio. And weeks later, Charlie Chaplin arrived. And he, he as an actor, comedian, but very soon he was a director. And Alice Howell was in the first five films that Charlie Chaplin directed. And, uh, and then she went on to be a, a star of her own silent pictures. So, uh, and then, so that was sort of the background of a hardworking family in a sense like yours in the circus. What I drew as well, learning about your father, your esteemed father was the work ethic he had. Yes. And, and that it's evident, like I think what you alluded to earlier was, this is not what people might think. These were not actors who had millions of dollars and, you know, they were struggling to, to put food on the table, that kind of thing. But it just seems to me that he, your father, really received those lessons about, uh, well, I don't know about thrift necessarily, but definitely about hard work. And it just seemed to be a running theme to, with your relationship with him, that he, yes. he, he, he was exacting. He demanded that people give their best work, but he was this quiet strength. And I, I just I, I just kept drawing connections back. And I think it's masterful the way you started with this, because it, it, it would be silly to start this book without mentioning this foundation that your, your dad and, of course, you received from them. You were kind of close with your grandmother, right? Is that right? I'm trying to. Yes. Yeah. So Both grandmothers. Yeah. But particularly uh, Alice Howell, the, the comedian. Right. Now, was, forgive me, there's a lot going on in this book. Was she all, did she also work with Stan Laurel and Babe Hardy? Or was that? Yes, she, she was, uh, yes, she worked with Oliver Hardy before he was part of Stan, of Laurel and Hardy. And uh, uh, in fact, my, my mother, uh, they were friends and my mother was at dinner one night when uh, uh, Oliver Hardy was late, but he but he sent word he was bringing his cameraman home, and my mother, being young and and very pretty, uh, kind of said, "Oh, some old coot," and when three hundred pound Babe Hardy walked into the living room, and behind him was this handsome young man, and uh, as my mother in telling the story, we said, "Well, one thing led to another, and you can come here." <laughs> Uh, he thought that on your point, um, Alex, about hard work. I was working with my father on the film Giant, um, which uh, and we were editing it, and it was a very ambitious picture, and it turned out to be one of the most successful and and esteemed pictures of all time with Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, James Dean, and others. And I was young, 
and my father was in the editing room and we would work from eight in the morning till six at night, sometimes on Saturdays, just refining and shaping this very large three hour and 20 minute picture as it ended up. And I remember one hot afternoon saying, Dad, God, this picture is awfully good. Don't you just think we had to put it out there? And, you know, and he, he looked at me and said, you know, if you think about how many men, he would have said today, how many men and women hours are going to be spent watching this picture over the years? Don't you think it's better we spend a little more of our time to make it as good as it can be? And you know that you know if you if you have have the good fortune to get good lessons from a father, that so influenced me throughout my life. I've always felt that you just keep working at it, and and then you have to let it go. And you know you want to make it to uh, you know to to be something that's valued and lasts. I want to get back to when you started joining him on movie sets in a little bit. If I could, could I just step back with your father? Um, yeah, of course, as you mentioned, Giant was a penny serenade. He, I mean, he did so many fantastic films. But the film that I think, the, the part about the film he made in World War II, where he was there at Dachau, when they were, Mr. Stevens, honest to God, I, I wept when I read that. Okay. Uh, your dad, my good God, what, what, a, what a man. Uh, would you mind telling our listeners what he did there? Yes, well, he, um, he was beyond draft age in 1942. Yeah. Uh, 43. But he saw Leni Riefenstahl, the great woman German director who made these films, stunningly evocative films about Hitler. Um, and he saw Triumph of the Will one night in a screening room at Columbia Studios where he was working. And he saw how effective the Third Reich was applying cinema to its purposes. And he said, I can't stay in Hollywood. Uh, while this is going on. And he, he re resigned from Columbia Pictures, a huge salary, uh, just making his way then. And uh, he ended up being, General Eisenhower appointed him head of combat photography for the invasion of Europe and the war in Europe. And he went in on D-Day and rode a Jeep across uh, Europe, uh, the liberation of Paris, the Battle of the Bulge, and then ended up at Dachau. And of course, that was just unthinkable. People did not know what was going on. And he realized at that moment that he uh, was becoming, going to become less of a, a, a camera journalist and more of a gatherer of evidence. Yeah. And he and his men took pictures. Uh, and he even went with the camera into a boxcar with frozen bodies. I mean, it was, you know, a tremendous experience, but I mean, my God, you know, that this, this, this great uh, tragedy and at, he, he was hoping to come home right after yeah. the armistice and he was asked to stay for nine more months and make a film to be shown at the war crimes trial where uh, all the great German generals and leaders were tried and they showed this film. Uh, so it was an important part of his life uh, and, you know, and, and affected his work when he came back. Was, uh, he, he still could make a lot of funny scenes in his pictures, but there was a depth to it. 
how do you not be changed by that? Uh, you know, and I recall reading in, in the book, your book, you, he basically said he was very concerned, or at least you, you and I inferred from what you wrote, that he was very concerned that they get away with it, that people, if there's not enough footage, people will not believe it really happened because it was so horrific and they could just paper over it. Is that fair? Is that what he was thinking? He was anticipating what became the reality that Holocaust deniers, some still saying that it never occurred that that footage is always going to be there to refute it. There's also this wonderful epistolary uh, relationship, you, the letters back and forth between you and your dad during the war, and how, I'll, I, I, again, I'm very moved by this. When you, you wrote a letter to your dad as soon as the day he left, mm. and this little boy, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to read this, you've got to listen to this, he literally, you literally said, uh, Mr. Stevens, to your dad, I watched your plane fly out of sight. Ah, uh, God, yes. I just, I nearly wept at that too. I mean, this book is so moving. Uh, you have an extraordinarily good memory for this. Uh, and and I, your love for him is so evident and palpable. Um, it was also magnificent that you all saved all these things. Yes, well, he saved things. My mother's, my, both my mother and my father saved things. My father had a... Uh, a storage room out at on um, Beacon Storage on Ventura Boulevard in North Hollywood, and he kept everything there. Um, you know the Laurel and Hardy scripts, the mementos from the war, uh, his files, his films, and you know that was left to me when he died. He the only time he ever talked about that eventuality. We were driving out to Beacons one day, and he was driving the car. And he said, you know, uh, I don't want this, 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 all this stuff goes to you. Uh, you know, I don't want it to become a burden to you the way it has been to me. Wow. And he said, if you want to throw it all in the LA river, it's fine with me. You know, well, I've walked into that place after he died, I'd been there before. And I looked around and I, it's just jam packed. There's a great, one of those red file cabinets you know, and I opened it and it's just this blaze of this reflection of trophies, his Oscars, everything. Nothing was in his office. It was all in this cabinet. And I realized uh, that I was in this room uh, surrounded by the evidence of a man's life. Yeah. And I first, and I thought about writing a book about my father. But then I asked for one of these rusty cans of film. I was then running the, the, uh, the AFI at the Kennedy Center in Washington. And they sent me this reel of film and I looked at it on a Friday afternoon alone in a kind of little 20 seat screening room. And it was labeled D-Day. And on the screen comes this color film. World War II was a black and white war. My father, and his men passed around a 16 millimeter color camera through all through Europe. And this was that color film of D-Day. Wow. And you see these barrage balloons in the sky and ships in the distance and, and men on deck. And around walking toward the camera comes this young man, my father at 37, with all of this gear. This is, it was the HMS Belfast which yep. would fire the first shot on the greatest invasion in history. Uh, and I saw that film 
And I said, no, I'm not going to write a book. I'm going to make a movie. And I made a movie called George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey, which is still available. And my friend Warren Beatty said it's the best film ever made about a filmmaker. Um, and uh, it was one of the most rewarding things, perhaps most rewarding thing I ever did to be able to make a, a nearly two hour film that tells the story of my father's career. He, magnificent in so many ways, and there's so many other anecdotes I can that come to mind reading your book that I'd love to tell the listeners, but you know what, listeners, go get this book, because you're not going to be sorry, but I've got to move on here, because, you know, um, your famous dad led quite an interesting life, but so did you, and please forgive me if I seem cynical, but a lot of people who have the upbringing you do in Hollywood, um, maybe don't go the direction you did maybe they have problems maybe think but your dad i i'm wondering do you think since your dad basically just said pop in gun it we're going to the we're going on set we're going to we're going to go to the editing room you're going to work together uh, i never got the sense that he really asked maybe i missed that it, it just seems like he brought you along no he did he very much asked he, the year i graduated from high school he was just back from the war he gave me two assignments i didn't have a job he said well come help me and, and I had to do two things. One was to break down Theodore Dreiser's wonderful novel, An American Tragedy. Yeah. Every character, every incident into two notebooks, part one and part two of the Dreiser book, because my father was about to tell, do, prepare the screenplay for A Place in the Sun, uh, for which he won his first Oscar with Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift and Shelley Winters. Uh, and the other was to read the books that came from the studio. And for a 17-year-old in hot Sunday, summer <laughs> afternoons, these treacly love story novels, <laughs> I was not enjoying it much. And one day a book came and I picked it up, and I, a small book, and I read it in an afternoon. And I went to see my father that night. He was in bed reading. And I said, Dad, I said, this is really a good story. I think you should read it. And he said, why don't you tell me the story? So I found myself walking around his bed, trying to recollect and shape the story of Jack Schaefer's Shane. And you know, so my, it, it, he gave me an opportunity to find out whether I had any appetite for or had any talent for his line of work. And it turned out that I was attracted to it. And the next summer I was, uh, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, at a job called Company Clerk on Shane. He, he very much let me determine my own path. Mr. Stevens, would you say, though, that, and I, I'm sure you're, you'll be modest, but I mean, if you had not plucked Shane out of the pile, would it perhaps never have been made, do you think? Perhaps, perhaps not. I mean, I, I, you know, but it, it, it's sort of, it's what happened in our family. <laughs> <laughs> it's, good, it's a good point. <laughs> uh, real quick though, on Shane, which is, a, I mean, who hasn't seen that? And if you, and listeners, if you haven't, go see it, um, get it. It's fantastic. I'm a huge Jack Palance fan. I, it was his break, was that a breakout role for him or was pretty he close? Did, he had done a very good part for Elia Kazan in uh, Something of the City, a film shot in New Orleans. But this this was really his where he gained great attention. I re, I think I the bit you you told in your your book too about the casting of this movie it, the movie was kind of dead in the water because of casting issues was it not? Yes, 
Yeah. What happened? Do you mind telling us? Yeah, Dad had just finished a place in the sun, and and he had talked to Montgomery Clift about playing Shane, and and Monty said yes, and then William Holden came along to play the Van Heflin, what became Van Heflin's part, and then Monty, who was a little neurotic, kind of decided he didn't want to do Shane, and then Bill Holden said, "Well, Monty's not doing it," you know. So all of a sudden, there was no cast and. And Frank Freeman, the head of Paramount Pictures, his name was Y. Frank Freeman. My father used to refer to him as Y. Frank Freeman. <laughs> and he called him, and he dad went over to his office and he said, George, he said, we can't make this film. It's, you know, we don't have, you know. And so dad, uh, no, he didn't go to his office. He got a mess. And so dad went over a few days later and he said, Frank, he said, can, can you open that drawer on the left of your, your desk where you have all that, your casting sheet? And Frank wrote, I said, let me see it. And he says, you have a picture with Alan Ladd? He said, Alan Ladd can play Shane. And he said, Van Heflin, I saw him in that Jim Ridger movie. Uh, he can play Joe Starrett. And uh, Gene Arthur, you know, Gene's been wonderful for me in, in two or three pictures. Uh, she can play uh, Mary and the wife. And I don't know whether Freeman was, you know, dad was a rather formidable presence. Uh, yeah. And anyway, they, he said yes, and off we went. Yeah, plucked little Brandon DeWild off the Broadway stage, I believe, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, sad, his young life cut very short, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, God, he was re remarkable as a boy, and that yeah. the audience can see it in Shane, just one of the great young, you know, you know, 12 years old. I mean, he was a boy. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and I, I know we don't have all day here. I wish I did because this, this is so many, there's so many things I want to ask you, but I, I, one last thing I, about your father before we, I'd like to transition into the work, the very important work you've done is, uh, but, but the who act situation, the house on American activity situation, and uh, maybe we don't have time to cover all of it, but at the very least your father was instrumental though, in going up against Cecil B. DeMille with some, a lot of the stuff that the very intriguing chapter about this. Yeah, he he had a tremendous courage and integrity, and he saw injustice. The, the president of the Directors Guild, a fine director, Joseph Mankiewicz, had actually been been recruited by DeMille. Uh, Joe Mankiewicz was a Republican, and this was the McCarthy era. And uh, and when Mankiewicz went on vac vacation to Europe after making uh, the Lady Eve, uh, DeMille instituted this loyalty oath. It's a complicated story and I don't want to get into it, but it really became a war. And then uh, the good guys won. And, uh, you know, it was a, a step against this uh, rampant persecution really of uh, individuals for their beliefs in Hollywood. And I think the reason I bring that up is because uh, there might be, I don't know, I, I see things, I'm I'm of a different generation, obviously, but I'm seeing things I don't uh, particularly care for going on now. And uh, I just think that, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it, it happens to be true, in my opinion, if you don't know what's happened before, you're going to easily fall prey when it happens again. Yeah, and it's, uh, there's know. a similar sort of evil in the water that's got to be uh, watched out for. Got to be watched out for. 
You, um, in the midst of working with your dad in several films, which uh, again, folks, read the book, listen to the book, you'll, you'll find out so many great anecdotes, but you were uh, recruited by Edward R. Murrow. Could you tell us about that? Yes, well, yeah, I was, and then I was directing out, had been directing Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Peter Gunn and other stories. I was just uh, still 20, in my late 20s. And uh, uh, President Kennedy was elected and uh, uh, he appointed Edward R. Murrow to head the United States Information Agency, which was assigned to tell America's story abroad. It included the Voice of America radio and had a motion picture operation making documentary films. And he asked me to come with him uh, and join him. And it was, you know, Murrow was just this great figure. It was tremendously flattering. But my father and I were about to start the greatest story ever told, this tremendously ambitious film. And I said to Murrow that I just, I, I can't leave my father at this time. And, and he accepted that. And a couple of days later, I was at the studio and I had not told my father about this. And we were walking to lunch, I remember. And, and I told him and he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you may have to do this. It was a father seeing a son. I used to joke with my friends that I was gonna spend my entire life working to become the second best film director in my family. Um, and my father saw a little of that. And it, it was this opportunity, it took me into a new world. I was still involved in film. Uh, they called the films we made in that Kennedy era, the golden age of USIA films. We had lots of wonderful young filmmakers I brought to work. Um, and, uh, and it put me in, in, you know, in the government and, uh, and in the inspiring era of John Kennedy. And uh, he was starting the National Endowment for the Arts, the first steps of initiating that, appointing a National Arts Council. Um, and they knew what to do about opera, symphony orchestras. That was all pretty straightforward, but what do we do about film? And, and the National Arts Council and the chairman uh, knew of me and they asked me and I said, I think we should have an American Film Institute. So um, that happened and they asked me to run it. And so that became a new, a new phase of my life for, uh, 12 years, but I continue to be involved today. How, how has, in your opinion, how has film, um, let's, let's, if we go back over 100 years with film, uh, has film, in your opinion, reached its zenith as far as influence with people, both emotionally and politically, but, but just, it, has film seen better, its best days, in your opinion? Where is film today, in, in, your, in, your, in your view? Um, I, I think film in motion picture theaters may have seen its best day, but we have this, uh, all these other uh, placements of film, notably streaming, which has become such a part of almost everyone's life. Uh, and, you know, wonderful work is being done and great work can be done in the future. So film will be with us. And I hope that the theatrical experience uh, will be modified, but still, because there's nothing like seeing a film on the big screen. You know, I, I've just watched it, uh, the difference. You know, we restored Giant last year 
and Steven Spielberg initiated it and we did it together with Warner Brothers and we had a premiere at the Turner Classic Movies Festival at Grumman's Chinese in Hollywood last April. And in an IMAX theater, I mean, Stephen and I talked about it with Ben Mankiewicz, but then this film comes on that had been had premiered in that theater 65 years earlier. And to see an audience look at a 65 year old film on the IMAX screen, you Rockhards and Elizabeth Taylor, James Dean and Dennis Hopper, other actors, you know, it was just such an experience, uh, you know, hearing them laugh, you know, to, and it's, you know, the, just a quick story. Sure. I went in 1952 to the Academy Awards with my father. We sat next to one another. Joseph Mankiewicz, previously mentioned, had won the Oscar the year before for, the, for All About Eve. I think I said the Lady Eve before. And uh, he came out and read the nominations. John Huston for The African Queen, William Wyler for Detective Story, Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris, Elia Kazan for A Streetcar Named Desire, and George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. Well, I wouldn't be telling you this if John Huston had won. Uh, <laughs> riding home in the car that night on the night of this biggest first Oscar, um, he was driving the car and the Oscar was on the seat between us. My mother and his grandmother, his actress, grand, his actress mother in the back. And he looked over at me and he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. It was before streaming, before home video, before Cinematex, pictures came and went, but he had this sense that what was important was the test of time. Now, he didn't know in 1952 that the 18 year old sitting across from him would become the founder of the American Film Institute or the creator of the Kennedy Center Honors, both of which about art and the test of time. Right. Um, but, you know, writing this book and looking back on that night, I realized, you know, what an influence my father was on me. So anyway, that led me into, you know, a combined Hollywood and Washington life. I was one of the first bi-coastal people. <laughs> it, it has getting AFI going, does, was it a tough sell for anybody? Or, you know, yeah. you said earlier, it, nobody it, knew. It, it was greeted. Actually, Variety had a headline. I'm trying to remember what it was. But anyway, kind of a death knell headline before the AFI was really announced, you know, and said all the problems. But so it was hard work and, and, and really that that lesson of tenacity because uh there were just a lot of times where a sane person would have said this is never going to work let's move on with one's life yeah. but um you know we've celebrated our 50th anniversary and we restored that there are i think fifty thousand films in the library of congress in the afi collection films we found and brought to the library for preservation and the AFI conservatory, you know, they're among the you know, several graduates this year were had Academy Award consideration as directors and different categories. So it's still um, uh, thriving. Do you, uh, do you still attend the Academy Awards? I only when uh, 
I have a, a an interest. Uh, <laughs> I understand. I understand. Oh my goodness, Mr. Stevens, I I promised your your folks I wouldn't uh, tire you out here with this stuff and be. I have so many more questions, but I have a if feeling you when want to I talk more. I, you also have a limit on the time you can use, but. I'm happy to talk to you if there's anything particular you want. Oh, okay. Well, well, I okay. Very good. Well, okay, fine. You uh, you open the door. A few more minutes, then. How about that? That'd be great. Um, you know, in the book, there are these these marvelous anecdotes uh, about the people you've worked with throughout your career. What I love about it is it's it's there's a very humanizing thing to hear about people's foibles and how they are, but not and and also just how noble a lot of people are or were. Was there anybody besides your father whom, whom you work with that maybe we have heard of or never heard of that was, was equal or not equally perhaps, but very important to you in what you did all the way up through Edward R. Murrow? Was there anybody there? Oh, so many. I mean, you know, just when you think of all the different programs I've produced, institutions I've run, you know, none of us do any of this stuff by ourselves. And I've just had, you know, I wrote this book and then when I was reading it, you know, and, and, and after, I realized perhaps one reason I was impelled to write it, and my wife Liz and I have li lived this kind of wonderful life. And because of the American Film Institute, my connections to Hollywood, because of the Kennedy Center Honors, we honored, I think during my era, 198 of the greatest creative people in history, Americans and others. And, and that we spent our life, and then in Washington and politics, all the people we spent our life with is what makes this book, I think, interesting for readers and listeners, because I've had the gift of being with these remarkable people, some in very intense situations, others in lighthearted, but to be able to remember them. And, uh, you know, Sidney Poitier, uh, who, I met in the 90, before I went to Washington, uh, when, when we were working on the greatest story ever told, I flew to New York to ask him to play a part in the picture on my father's behalf. And then we became great friends and up until his death. And in his last, his last public appearance, I think, was when the two of us celebrated in Hollywood AFI's 50th anniversary. And he and I came on this stage at the Life Achievement Award. He, the founding vice chairman of AFI, and me, the founding director. So, uh, and then I had the thrill of making a miniseries called Separate But Equal, in which Sidney played Thurgood Marshall uh, and won the Emmy for the best miniseries, telling the story of the Supreme Court decision on Brown versus the Board of Education that outlawed segregated schools and Burt Lancaster was in that. So I just have, you know, all of these rich experiences and I am really happy that I've written them down and spoken them now. <laughs> well, you, that actually was a question I was leading up to though. You mentioned it, you brought it up about the recording. Were you initially going to record this book as an audiobook? I had not thought seriously about it, but I, you know, I narrated uh, George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey, the movie about my father. And in the Kennedy Center Honors, we had those biographical films. And occasionally we'd have people whose elocution was not as good as their artistry. And so I was the kind of ghost narrator 
when we needed uh, help. So uh, I knew I could do it and, um, and, it made, and I was happy to do it. You have such a diplomatic way about you. <laughs> Elocution, industry. I'm going to use that if that's all right. Um, if you don't mind, because I think this show is the listeners are both readers and writers. And I'm curious, uh, how long do you recall how long it took you to record this? It, it was over 50 hours. Wow. Yeah. And because uh, of this uh, thing we talk about, the, the Stevens uh, appetite for excellence, I got very involved in the editing of it because I wanted it to be just right. And I had a wonderful editor. It was virtual, Mark Gallup in Nashville, who does a lot of the most important books. And he was just so skillful and so inviting my comments. He wanted, he wanted it to be as good as it can be. So we're happy with it. <laughs> That's very good. And as I said, uh, listeners, it's available on Spotify and about uh, 30 other places, I think. There'll be links in the show notes at uh, mgopod.com. Mr. Stevens, I've really enjoyed meeting you. And I just wondered, uh, I would like to, I'd like to do this with all my guests. If there's anything I forgot to ask you or just anything you'd like to mention in closing, I'd, I'd love to hear it. I would just say for writers and filmmakers, when people ask me what most important thing you learn, it is respect for the audience to not talk down to the audience. In the old days of movies, the studio heads used to say they have the mentality of 14-year-olds. My father never bought into that. And this idea of, in your work, leave a little something for the, for the reader or for the viewer to do. Don't lay it out all for them and, and realize that they are thoughtful people who are looking for an experience and they will contribute. And there it is, folks. George Stevens Jr. has spent an incredible career behind and around the camera. And by the way, folks, if um, you, uh, when you get to your uh, golden years, if there are movies that were uh, prizes of your youth and they're still remembered, this gentleman probably has a lot to do with that, especially with the AFI. But what a gentleman, what a delight. The book is incredible. It is called My Place in the Sun. Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood in Washington. Get it in hardback, paperback. I, I think it's an ebook. But now, especially if you've just listened to this man's mellifluous voice, get the audiobook. It's on Spotify and 28 platforms. Mr. Stevens, George Stevens Jr., thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, joining us here on Mysterious Goings On. Alex, it was a real joy. You, you brought out the best. <laughs> <laughs> High praise, sir. High praise. Have you lost your belief in finding a really good mystery thriller? Well, trust me, you've got to have faith. Pilot's faith. Kirkus Review says of the book that Greenwood pulls many tricks from his writer's satchel, has a quirkiness and energy, and snappy, snarky dialogue that keeps things moving briskly. A well-handled mystery with the appropriate twist at the end. Midwest Book Review says newcomers to Pilot will find no barriers to quick immersion in his personality and situation, while prior series readers immediately become involved in another conundrum which tests his skills and the ways in which others view him in his world. Surviving a recent attempt on his life, a weary John Pilot returns to Cross Township, where a bizarre string of shootings has paralyzed the tiny college burg. Pilot joins forces with the law to find out why people are being terrorized in his name and stop it. Unfortunately, when he turns to his family for support, he finds only hardened hearts 
people are dying, accusing fingers are being pointed his way, and he has nowhere left to turn. Everything John Pilate believes in, family, sanity, and even himself, are shaken to the core in Pilate's faith. Online Book Club says, It's a gripping and fun story that kept me hooked. Greenwood's writing style is dynamic, and the book reads like a movie script. You can get John Pilate's series number eight, Pilot's Faith, exclusively in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com. And remember, in the end, it all comes down to faith. Pilot's Faith. A Caroline Street Press book by J. Alexander Greenwood. Thanks for joining us on Mysterious Goings On. Be sure to follow Mysterious Goings On wherever you get your podcast and never miss an episode. Don't forget, you can get the links to books and other things mentioned on the show at mgopod.com. Until next time, keep reading. Keep reading.